Welcome to the sixth episode of our podcast series in which hot topics, including new initiatives and alternative viewpoints on patient engagement within the life sciences sector will be covered. Though patient engagement is more and more common nowadays, it is absolutely crucial that it is also meaningful and sustainable. With this podcast series, we would like to contribute to achieving that goal. So my name is Roger Lechtenberg and I'm a senior partner and co-owner of Admedicum. And today I'm sitting here with Steve Clark, a well-recognized stage four cancer patient from the UK um, who has been living his life with the disease over a period of 10 years so far. And he's also an active patient advocate. So welcome, Steve. Hi, Roger. Good to speak to you. It's really great that you're, you're here. We met over a conference in London. That's right. And I uh, heard you speaking and I really came to you right away after the after the talk and chatted with you and you are really inspiring. You know, uh, when I heard you talking about what you were doing and what you've been doing in the, in the past. So maybe as a start, can you share a little bit about your personal journey, um, you know, where everything started? Um, uh, also, maybe talk about catalysts and motivations why you became really active uh, as a patient and, and your roles in Bowel Cancer UK, Cancer Research UK and and your own initiatives that you started in 2017. I have bowel cancer, stage 4 colorectal cancer, um, but of course that's not who I am. One of the things that I'm very keen to talk about is that, you know, I, you know I've got uh, very strong connections with my family, very active life, love traveling the world. Uh, and since my diagnosis, I have continued to travel the world. I'm very pleased to say that with stage four cancer, um, j just uh, before we had COVID hit the world, I was walking through the rainforest in Borneo. And so that's <laughs> something you don't normally picture for stage four cancer. You but are a human being. That's uh, the point. And that's yeah. the whole thing. So, but my family and friends are really important to me. You know, I, I, I've got lots of hobbies and activities like yoga and that sort of thing. But my background as well, which does shape where I got to in terms of being an advocate and how I do things. Um, I worked in the National Health Service in the UK, so uh, uh, in clinical biochemistry for seven years. And then for 30 odd years, I worked in the pharma industry in sales. Okay. UK marketing, global marketing, global strategy, and, and the part of that for the last 10 years, 15 years, I've been a consultant. So running a consultancy practice, helping and advising pharma. So that was me in the, if you like, in the lead up to getting diagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that does shape how, I, partly how I handle the diagnosis and also what I've done since then with, with getting involved in things in a different way. Um, a very short story of my cancer journey because um, obviously as you said it's 10 years which is a long time for, for stage 4 colorectal cancer but right at the very beginning my diagnosis was very lucky I had very mild sy uh, symptoms uh, just going to the toilet a lot um, GPs did some tests on me and I got diagnosed with cancer but at the time when I was diagnosed with a very large primary it had already spread to my liver and both lungs so I had three mets in my liver and eight across both lungs. Uh, the ones in my lungs grew to about two to three centimeters each. Um, the primary was also particularly unusual because the normal size of, of a primary tumor in bowel cancer is about say two, two and a half centimeters diameter. It's a little ball. And that, so that's the most common size. 
Mine was six and a half centimetres wide and over 20 centimetres long, sort of grown along the bowel wall. So, the, I, but I was caught just as it was spreading. Mm-hmm. So, growing a lot in my other organs at the point that I was diagnosed. So, I was, but I was lucky in that respect that if I'd been diagnosed, say, six months later, we may have been, we may not be having this conversation. Sure. Not be sure. A different conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I then went through, so I had urgent surgery. Uh, to remove the primary so literally within days of my diagnosis i uh, had um, abdominal resection which removed the primary i then had to wait for the two and a half months to heal before i could start on chemo i went on to what we call intense chemo for six months um, and it was a regimen called fulfuri plus a drug called uh, bevacuzumab uh, so that was every two weeks um, i was in the chair having an inf- having infusions for about six hours eight hours um, and then I had a bottle of chemo attached to me for two days afterwards. And that was every two weeks. It was an intense phase. And the intention of that was to make it so that the secondaries in my lungs could be operated on because they mm-hmm. were too, too large to be able to remove. Um, but at the end of my six months chemo, we had to cancel the surgery because my liver was clear. My left lung was clear. And I only had three little dots in my right lung, which turned out to be scar tissue. So that's what chemo and, uh, you know, one of the more modern uh, uh, biological treatments did for me. So it's a marker. I I think we talk a lot about the need for all these different aggressive treatments. Mm -hmm. Actually, the traditional approaches do still work and they do still have a role. And they they always have a role alongside some of the new innovations. So so that six months of intense chemo following surgery got me sorted. Um, And then, again, we're talking... So I was diagnosed in, in the um, in May 2013. So come the end of 2013, that was when my, my um, intense chemo finished, and my oncologist, who I've got a very good relationship with, mm-hmm. um, my oncologist is still looking after me now, um, and uh, he said, look, you, because of the um, type I've got, it's called KRAS mutation, so the genetic profile okay. of the of the type of tumor that I've got um, is an aggressive type. It's, it, it's, it's known to be aggressive. It, the, stat, the general stats show that you've got a high, higher mortality rate with it, higher recurrence rate. So he, he introduced the idea of what we call maintenance, what he and I call maintenance chemo. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, 10 years ago, this was almost not heard of. It was a very new concept, especially in colorectal cancer. And so the idea is that I have if you like a lower, a much lower level of intensity of chemo to control the growth. So, so just to keep the cancer in check. Yeah. Now, when it was first put over to, this is where com- we will talk about communication and the importance of communication and that sort of thing. But this was one of the things that got me because originally when I was told you're going to be on chemo for life, it felt like it was a sentence. It was a negative thing. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, it's 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 not something you're looking forward to. No, absolutely. And but actually, um, it's no different than what we do with almost every other disease. Because mm-hmm. in, in, at the moment in medicine, apart from infections, there are very few things that we cure. Correct. We don't have the ability. We control them. Diabetes, hypertension, they are deadly. But we people can live with those diseases by controlling them. And that's where we started to come to with even advanced cancer is and it's, it's a different mindset. And, it, and this is one of the things that we'll come back and talk to a, a lot during this chat. Um, it's the approach of both the doctor and the patient mm-hmm. to 
living life with the disease, you know, so, uh, as opposed to cure or not. You said just in the sideline, um, you know, I'm just, I'm still being treated by the same oncologist and I have a really good relationship with him, um, assuming that it's a, it's a he. How important is that to you? You know, having this, this very strong, I guess, beacon also for you to go back to, you know, uh, in, in this 10 year history of, 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 of living with cancer. Essential, absolutely essential. Uh, my, my, the two primary people I've had medically looking at me, if you like, my, my colorectal surgeon, my specialist colorectal surgeon mm -hmm. and my oncologist. And so up until what, about three years ago, the surgeon was still in touch with me. We were doing regular scoping, uh, you know, colonoscopies, etc. And there were a couple of tweaks that he had to do for me, but he's I've been discharged from his care now. Um, and But my oncologist, by far the, the most important person. Uh, we had to find our way together. You have to work out what your communication is. Um, and I think, and again, this is something... Communication I, is not per se the most strongest point from, from everybody uh, in, in healthcare, it's, right? <laughs> and it, absolutely, it, it's one of the drivers for me. Uh, there, yeah. There's a big gap, there's a big need for, especially in oncology, and we'll we'll loop back on this a lot i think um there's a big need for improvement in communication skills then judging what the patient needs and how you're going to give it to them um mm -hmm. and it's really really critical so initially some of the things that my oncologist did didn't work for me i was okay. uh, i actually uh, you you heard me do a talk about nocebo effect yeah of course yeah yeah uh, it, remember that <laughs> It's, it's something that I'm sort of getting a reputation for. So um, the nocebo effect um, is basically, everybody knows the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. the, the best known fact in medicine is the placebo effect. It, almost anybody on the street knows what the placebo effect is, which is if you think something's going to work or it's going to do you good, it's going to improve you or cure you, it's more likely to be successful. Yeah. That's the placebo effect. And I... With I get a lot of patients. I do a lot of interaction with, with other patients. A number of times I have heard the, the line, there's no evidence that a positive mindset makes a difference in medicine. Mm. Actually, if you want to, if you want proof, the placebo effect is proof. that no. It's entirely attitude. And you know, because you, you've seen data in different diseases, it's anything from 12% to 25, 30% responses to placebo. That's positive mindset. Yeah. But what I've noticed over the years, helping other patients, is that mindset does make a difference. And if if you're approaching things negatively, then I was seeing you know, people having more problems. Uh, and what I'm saying there is, I'm not saying everybody has to be shouting yay all the time and and bouncing around smiling. <laughs> it's it's not toxic positivity. Mm. Um, you hear about being negative because of misconceptions and misunderstandings. And that in medicine is really common because when we become patients, and bear in mind my background, health service. You have a relevant background that yeah. makes it easier for you to grasp everything that comes on your path, right? And I was scared of chemo. I, I okay. made the so so I, sh I should say I can imagine by the way uh, yeah. but, but yeah and it, it's it's how it goes so so because I approached it negatively and it was because of misconceptions and so the opposite of the placebo effect which I I'm, I'm a little bit gutted it was identified in 1961 
but nobody talks about it. I thought I'd come across this new idea when I was researching for that presentation earlier this year. And then, I, then I, when I was doing my research, I found it, which in a way was great because it meant I wasn't going crazy. I was talking sense, uh, but it meant that I didn't have a discovery. Um, uh, but, but the nocebo effect is the opposite of the placebo effect. So if you think something is going to harm you or isn't going to work, that's more likely to be the case. Yeah. Now, what I'm now talking, because I've, I've talked about this now for six months or so, I've, I've been talking about communication in an oncology for seven years. Mm. I've been talking about nocebo effect for six, six months or so. Um, where I've come to now is actually it's one, one of the biggest secrets in medicine because it's kept from the doctors. I've, I've, I've talked to audiences of hundreds of uh, clinical researchers and specialists. No one has ever heard of the nocebo effect because it's not taught in medicine. Your background, Roger, I mean, you, you've been in healthcare for how long now? Uh, 20, 22, 23 years now, pretty much, and, and trained as a biomedical uh, chemist, basically, uh, originally, and did a PhD. I can't remember that I heard myself, nocebo, before I talked uh, talk to you or listened to you. So it, it's not taught, and so, but it's really important. So what we're campaigning to do now is actually raise the profile of it and what you can do about it. And so one of the things, and I, I, what I've started to identify is what I've called the nocebo spiral, which is all of the things that pile in on a patient. Uh, it all adds up, isn't it? That's the point. Yeah. So it's not one yeah. thing or another. And, and it could be societal pressures. It could be family stories. One of the things with me, a, a well-meaning friend who'd been through a chemo for a different disorder, mm -hmm. which had really been tough for him, took me on one side and talked me through his story to try and help me prepare. But his story was completely different. So I, but I was really scared. So even I had the nocebo effect and where it manifested for me was my first cycle of chemo. I went in really scared. So a friend of mine drove me into the hospital, mm -hmm. sat in the chair for about eight hours that day. When I left with the bottle of chemo attached to me, I practically had to be carried out to the car got back to the house, went to sleep, had some friends staying over and they like, helped me to eat on the night. And then I perked up a little bit. But the next day I was sitting downstairs on my own and really feeling sick. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, oh, this is it now. You knew this yeah, was yeah. Yeah. Everybody talks about the nausea. You knew this was going to come. This is what's happening. And luckily I heard myself thinking that. And I thought, hang on a minute, am I doing this? this this is the wrong approach don't do this why am i doing this to myself why am i thinking right? yeah, yeah so i quickly went online and said what do you do about nausea uh, and and it was the advice for it for example was really simple it was don't lie down because the typical thing if you feel ill you, yeah, like, you, you lie down that's the easy solution that everybody takes right but for nausea that's exactly the wrong thing because your stomach's in the yeah. right your esophagus you will be sick mm -hmm. so actually was sit up or ideally walk around a little bit yeah yeah have a bit of toast, have a bit of water, breathe. And and I did that and I started to feel better. So and you started to adapt to the situation that occurred to you in a way, instead of thinking, oh, this is really bad and getting in this negative spiral, basically. That's what Absolutely. And, and it was exactly, but it was very clear because what I did mm -hmm. pretty much wiped out the nausea. It shows that it was me causing the nausea, not the meds at that point. And so that is nocebo effect.
But you know, with the same with placebo and and also with nocebo, I think it's it's not always happening, of course, and it's not like rocket. It's not not a precise science or something like that. So there's there's a, a certain element that is placebo effect or nocebo effect, and that makes it probably also difficult to to really get that across to the to the bigger audiences in the end, and to make it more concrete and more quantifiable, right? But actually, um, having the term for it because yeah, that's already that, a good start right yeah. that actually the response is because effectively i've been talking about this part of things for seven years mm-hmm. but now having the term to use makes yeah. it more and the fact that there is clinical, it makes it more tangible isn't it makes it tangible that's yeah. the whole point and, and i think that's where it really really came so I, I mentioned i had a really really good response to chemo so i because i i created some little mantras i pr- tried to approach it positively um, I've always I give I write a lot of tips for patients and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. One of them is view chemo as your friend, and <laughs> and it is it's an important thing to consider because yeah. most of us are scared of it. And if you think about it, and actually I'll tell you this from from my my experience, almost every cancer patient will tell you that um, generally speaking, apart from if you've got a very large tumor, you may feel some tumor pain. Mm-hmm. For the most part, you aren't physically aware that you've got this cancer in your body. Sure generally speaking yeah so therefore the benefit of chemo is very quiet because it's doing stuff to something that you can't feel and you don't know is there yeah. and you have to wait until you have a scan because largely the, the markers don't necessarily give you an accurate view of what's going on in terms of size so you have to wait to find out so it's a, as I say the benefits of, of chemo are generally very quiet mm-hmm. side effects of chemo are very loud yeah. in your face so you so easily the balance goes in the wrong direction exactly. right right that's so i encourage people to and I, I encourage them based on my own experience mm-hmm. um, obviously this is placebo effect it's the welcome welcome your chemo i always say to them see it as a however whatever works for the individual there isn't any right or wrong sure. see it as a friend see it as see it as um a superhero fighting for you see it as an army going into battle yeah. it's but it's whatever whatever suits you in terms of your visualization and that approach. So that but that's how I'd viewed it. And important, okay. when I got just to finish that, Roger. Sorry, yeah, yeah, sure. It, no worries. When I got those outstanding scan results mm-hmm. at the six month mark, where it was like liver was clear, left lung was clear, just little dots in my right lung. The I was given a copy of the um, CT scan report from the uh, radiologist where it said the cancer has practically disappeared. Those are his, his words. Um, and I was talking to it with someone. Oncologist had given me the results. I sat a couple of days later with my chemo nurse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were talking through it. And she was obviously delighted. And she said, you don't see words like this. And she looked at me and she said, you know why you got these results? And she said, 50% this was the, the chemo. And okay. it was your attitude. He said, She said, I see so few people take it on the way you did. And I mentioned that in my first cycle, I had to be carried out practically. Sure. Cycle a bit better. By cycle four, I was driving myself to and from hospital. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I so went, you completely turned it around in your head and in the way you approached it. Okay. And you just and, didn't and give saying, in, basically. I was obviously it knocked me about. There were side effects to it. Of course, there were. Sure. You know, it's a serious medicine. Um, but by respecting it and planning my cycle around where I knew my low days were going to be. I kept a chemo diary, so I knew where my low days were going to be. By doing that, 
I was able to, on my middle weekends, on one occasion I went to Spain on holiday with a friend. Another occasion I went to Frankfurt and helped teach yoga. And on another occasion I went to um, Hoboken just by New York for Thanksgiving in, in America. That's in the middle of intense chemo and that's entirely an attitude in itself. It's fantastic that you were able to do that, I think. Um, and, and it shows also how um, how important this is. When you're living with a disease, you, you know, your life doesn't stop, right, uh, in a way. Is that in the end also why you really thought, you know, let me become more active in this field as a patient activist and advocate? Because at Medicum, we always say, you know, the only true experts knowing what it is to live with the disease are the ones that are actually having the disease, right? And it can't be the doctors, it can't be the pharma companies, it can't be uh, nurses, and, and they all have their own perspectives and they have very valuable information to share every single time, of course. However, the true experts of living with the, with the disease are the patients, their carers, informal carers or caregivers, whatever you want to call it. How do you see that? Is, is that... I, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. It's right. Uh, what, but what I, I will always say is I'm not saying that if you approach your treatment positively or not negatively, you will have the journey that I had. You know, I, 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 you, I, you don't know. That's the point. It, yeah. It, but it, it'll, it'll help you to have a hopefully a smoother cope journey. With it. So you'll be able to yeah. cope with it. One of the lines that the, the strap line, if you like, the strap for five, the, the program that I run for patients is mm -hmm. living life with stage four cancer. And one of the lines that I wrote around it which was uh, very much to your point, is a diagnosis of stage four cancer doesn't have to be, mean the end of your life. Yeah. It can be the reason to start living it, which is, I think you you touched on it there, and it's really, really important. Yeah, you know, the more the more I'm working in this field, and I'm now doing, uh, you know, working uh, with Medicum now for about four or five years, and uh, before that, even in the rare diseases space, where I did a lot of research uh, uh, with the CRO, I, I came across so many individuals every time they they showed me that there is so much more to live for than simply yeah. you know just having the disease and lying down in the bed and stuff if you're that fortunate that you can do that you know there are also diseases where you don't have a choice in a way yeah, but but even you know i even know somebody who has als and uh, and is really severely debilitated having that and it's deteriorating and even now he's in a wheelchair, he can only speak with a speaking computer. Um, he's doing remarkable things to still do something yeah. um, meaningful for him, for uh, for his legacy and, and everything else. Those are really important stories to be, be told, I think. And that's one of the reasons why we have these kind of podcasts. And yeah. and it's 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 definitely inspiring, I would say. Um, and just to, to, to back up what you're saying there, Roger, I, I, for a long time, it felt as though I was an outlier. I, I was an unusual case, but actually now, we're seeing with stage four cancer, um, colorectal cancer particularly, but across mm. most types of cancers, uh, you're seeing more and more people with stage four living longer, but not just surviving, they're thriving, they're living fulfilling. They're living their life, basically. And, yeah, and that's yeah. what we're talking about, there, it's a fulfilling life. But coming back to your question before about did what made me move into advocacy? Yeah, yeah. So, so what was the real trigger, actually? There was a bridge, actually. So um, when I moved on to the um, maintenance chemotherapy, which mm. some people call palliative chemo, some doctors will call it palliative chemo, 
but I think there's a negative... That's a negative association to palliative, in a way, but, isn't it? But, but actually, if you think what we talked about before, most medicine is palliative, non-curative. I, I do agree, but I think that the word palliative, that, that means there is nothing to do anymore than no, just exactly. bearing a, with it, basically. Yeah. That's why my oncologist and I call it maintenance chemo, or okay. long-term chemo. So yeah. when I moved on to my maintenance chemo, I did have a few side effects and I went onto an online forum from the charity Bowel Cancer UK um, and I went on there as a patient and just said, look, I'm on these tablets which are giving me these side effects. Um, any tips, any recommendations of, of getting through it? And I found it very supportive. I got some really good tips that made a difference. The, cool. the detail of that isn't really important here. It's, it's, the, it's that reaching out to other patients was really helpful. Mm. I stayed on that forum, became involved and became a moderator within a few months. So I was a team, there were a team, about five of us, all patients that moderated the the forum to keep it safe for the other patients. As I was moderating it, and, and that's where I started to get involved in helping other patients. Sure. But I also started to become aware of the disparity, the differences in, in levels of care. Now, it could be, I'm not saying bad doctors doing bad things to patients, but it was it was language, it was terminology, differences in the types of drugs that were being used etc and i started to see all of these differences especially around the stage four disease yeah but that, that's where you are focused in a way yeah. right uh, and 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 it was that that started to make me want to do more so initially it was with the charity i did a few pro I was involved in some projects with them and, and i started to look at a bit wider and I've, and so I, i was involved in the in the forum for I think I moderated it for about five years or so. Um, but as I was approaching my, uh, and I got involved in, as I said, lots of projects with them, mm. but as I was approaching my five-year mark, there's a milestone in in, in, in cancer care uh, that the five-year survival is a big magic marker. And especially around, uh, you know, around cancer, it's, it's, it's a big, big deal. I can use this to relate to um, stats and what stats mean, etc. Because um, knowing that there are a number of patients that listen to this, um, when I was diagnosed, after six months, despite my outstanding response to chemo, mm -hmm. that was when um, we taught survival rates. And we, I mean, what's my prognosis? Because at diagnosis, my oncologist quite rightly said, when I asked him about how long have I got, he said. It's not easy to say now, let's see how you respond to your chemo, which was absolutely the right response. That was the right thing. To, it's, it's the right response, but I, so I, I just imagining whether I would, when I get, when I would get such a message, I would probably go crazy at that moment because I want to know what I'm fighting for in a way. Um, but it, it, but that, that's, where it, that's where you tweak it to the individual. Yeah, when, yeah, of course. When yeah. he said to me, yeah. um, I want to see how you respond to chemo and then we can make a judgment. My response was, well, in that case, I'm going to get everything I can out of chemo. Mm -hmm. Is that I'm going to really attack this. If he told me at diagnosis, the median survival for my diagnosis was 18 months, I don't know if I'd have had the fight. And that's the difference. So, and the five year survival when I was diagnosed was five to seven percent. Between five and seven percent. Yeah. The survival rate is still it, it's increased a lot. It's 15 percent. Maybe depending on the country, it's, it's still low, but it's yeah. it's it's but it's two to three times higher actually. Yeah, well, what we've got to remember. So I, do, I I talk about this to our patients a lot. Those stats are not predictors of individual survival. No, oh. that's population data. So it's but it's really useful. 
So what it tell, allows us to do is using that data, we can compare one country to another and mm -hmm. say, this country's got much higher survival rates. Why is that? What are they doing right? Yeah, and likewise, you can actually do um, specialist center to specialist center. You know, this, why is this one better than this one? Mm. practice. So there's an aspect of that that you can do. And it's very good. But you have to remember, it's retrospective data. So it looks back historically. It's generally data from about three years ago, looking, mm. not this year's data. They haven't cut this year's data yet, and they won't for a long time. Yeah. So it's generally the data from about three years ago, looking back historically. And as I say, it doesn't. it, it shows you population data. It doesn't show the individual, what you will do. Mm -hmm. Likewise, so that's talking about survival rates. The prognosis is a different thing entirely. So wh when I spoke to my um, oncologist, when I'd had that, those great results, to the right, how long do you, do you think I've got? He said, I can't see beyond 12 to 18 months from here. So that would have been two years to two and a half years. Every six months, I asked him the same question, and he still said 12 to 18 months. So I just kept moving the goalposts back. Yeah. Extending it, extending it. And the key thing to remember about a prognosis, the, the two things I'll say in it. First of all, it's an educated guess. With these kind of diseases that can actually, you know, all of a sudden it, indeed speed up again. And uh, nobody knows. Nobody uh, but, really knows. Yeah. But again, when because again, a lot of people can say, I've been told I've only got a year. And, and they're like, I'm going to go spend my money type of thing. It's different, different reactions to it. But, um, being told that is the response to it, it there are different responses what i would say that the way that i approached it was that gave me a goal to beat so 12 to 18 months okay that's not a line in the sand but okay 12 to 18 months i stop mm. it's 12 you are a fighter uh, and, but again it's mindset it's yeah. how you're going to approach it and that that sort of thing so but it's prognosis and so i mentioned i'd say two things about prognosis one is that it's an educated guess mm. and the other is that apart from you as the patient, the person that will be happiest to be proved wrong is the doctor. Yeah. They will be they'll be so happy to be wrong on that. And they will work with you to make sure that they are wrong. Sure. But they will be as honest that they will always be honest in those assessments. So but and I think it's it's important to understand so so but this again comes back to our conversation about communication. Because mm -hmm. it's if a patient is asked, as, as you and I used, would have been two very different responses to the same situation. How long have I got? Yeah. And the answer, the answer was either, well, for me, which suited me, was, can't tell you at the moment, let's see how well you respond to chemo. But he did then for you, he would have to go back and say, actually, these are the numbers. But you then have to put them into context. Yeah. And that's where I think many doctors fall down. From, from your perspective, you know, being a very educated patient now after 10 years of experience and, and everything that you go through and every activities that you've done with Bowel Cancer UK and other uh, organizations, your own initiative, besides the communication, you know, I think that's a very important element. I couldn't agree more. I think one of the, the things with communication, I think, not even between patient and doctor, but also between all the stakeholders in our industry that we are also, you know, uh, that we are part of. Communication is everything. Uh, communication is everywhere and every at every time and every decision, every uh, thing where we are talking to different people and different stakeholders. And it there is always 
something that can be improved on communication. I think that is, it is maybe the most hard, the hardest thing to do in life. I would say to to and, get really good communication going. And um, say, Roger, I think yeah. in oncology that's especially true, because if you look at the, the last ten years in, in cancer, mm -hmm. oncology has been so successful. Because we are getting the, the the survival rates are increasing phenomenally. The quality, you know, the, the whole immune immunotherapies that have been developed and are currently being developed and progress, you know, and and improved and stuff, and the combination between chemo and immunotherapies and stuff. Yeah, yeah, they show their value. I think. In the and animal. so, because of that, I think this is why I think oncology has been hugely successful. It's now got to catch up with itself in terms of its communication skills. Yeah. Because yeah. actually, the all the, the first of all, in most countries, Germany is an, an exception. But in most countries, doctors aren't taught communication skills, uh, which is odd. In the Netherlands, they are not really being taught uh, yeah. communication skills. I think, uh, at least, well, indirectly, they are, and there is more attention to it nowadays. I think also in med school uh, than before. But I think, yeah, you know, communication skills and, and being really empathic, that is something that is quite a difficult skill to to really uh, master. Something that I'm working on, I'm involved in a big project on that, and I've, I've been talking about this a lot, I mean, you've heard me talk about it. Mm -hmm. Other things, so that's why in oncology as well, the language of oncology is set up for where we were 15, 20 years ago. Sure. It, Literally so there's are, a long way to go there. Yeah, we, we are labelled at diagnosis as curable or incurable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, we, and many patients are told at diagnosis, you've got cancer, it's incurable. Yeah. yeah. We don't use those labels in any other diseases. Uh -huh. And that's what I'm saying. So there's nuances. I'm, I'm not saying don't ever tell patients you can't be cured or don't tell patients the bad news. You've got to be honest with them. You no, but you need to to move in the field. You need to upgrade your communication as well. When the when the field is progressing and things are changing, yeah. uh, you shouldn't that's forget that's about those kind of terminologies, right? And that's, and that's I think, important. That communication skills have to, have to change across medicine. Mm -hmm. it, particularly the language and the tone has to be updated has to come into the modern age and again to your point when you said very early on you said the people that know best about what it's like to have the disease are the people with the disease this is this is an area where working with the patients on what the language should be and especially with you you mentioned some of these new therapy areas the new immunotherapies the new biomarkers and then you so you've got the the mutations, the wild types, the triple this, yep. and then you've it's got never an easy name that they choose, huh? <laughs> it was terrible terminology because if you look at the the, the, the biomarkers that I'm particularly familiar with, like BRAF and uh, and KRAS, which in colorectal cancer, classic biomarkers, um, you're either wild type or uh, mutant. If you're told you're wild type, that sounds terrible, but actually that's normal. Yeah, but wild type is better than a mutant, I yeah. would say. <laughs> but if you were told, oh, you're KRAS wild type, yeah, you'd, yeah. you'd look it up, you'd find out that you've got KRAS, and th that's it, you'd be, oh God, and that means this. So actually, the the language that's applied to these new things, how it's rolled out is not done well. The How how, how the drugs work, how they're used, etc. The whole area around biomarkers, it's wonderful. The advance is incredible. And it is me it's making such a difference for patients.
the science is fantastic and, and we are seeing big advances and they're coming through thick and fast mm. which is fantastic but we've got to be smart with how that's communicated to the patient because yeah. i've got a, a so that's your biggest gap i would say from, okay. from your perspective yeah. on on what can change from a patient perspective to yeah. healthcare and in particular states for cancers and cancer in general i would say for a long time now there's been a move towards patient centricity in inverted commas mm. and one of the big things was called shared decision making shared decision making can never work until communication is improved and the language is improved shared decision making is a destination yeah but i think that that is you know you're completely right you can only do shared decision making if there is a mutual understanding of the same thing uh from from the different angles uh you know it, it doesn't you don't have to agree per se on the same things but but at least you need to be well understood on what what we are what you're talking about together with each other to make a shared decision i think yeah as a, as a last point here so communication is the most important thing from from your perspective um any any major other gaps that you see besides what would fall under the umbrella of communication? In signposting, we're talking cancer specifically, but actually probably true with many serious diseases. One of the things when you're, it links to communication, granted, but mm -hmm. this is your communication. If someone is told that they've got a disease, you get home and one of the first things you do these days is you hit your favorite search engine on the computer. And yeah, we always say, don't trust Dr. Google, but it's it's the, <laughs> you, you, go, you, go, go on to, you go on there, and you will find out what you can. Mm -hmm. um, it's really hard to find the, the reliable information. Some yeah. of the doctors and nurses will say, only go to reliable sites. How do you know what is a reliable site as a patient? And I think that's an interesting thing that you're raising here, uh, Steve. Um, you know, uh, we are actually quite active in that field in a way that we are developing trying to develop uh, a tool and we have developed actually a tool in in germany now where for certain in disease areas we are actually providing that navigator kind of uh, almost call, could call it a digital navigator in a way where really the information that that has be, that will be shown through that that portal is being vetted information being information that is trustworthy no doubts um and and people can trust that and i think that is something you know regardless of whether it comes from us or from other uh, you know agencies or initiatives i think that's a, a crucially important thing you know especially now with ai and everything that comes along uh, in in our world every single day you you look at the news uh, and you see again <laughs> something that was fake in one way or the other oh yeah it's so it's and of course that's also the case in, in when you when you talk about patients patient information yeah. you know disease information uh, and, alternatives etc i was going to say with alternatives you have the people selling their version of, of an inverted commas cure for cancer there are uh -huh. many of them and they sound very tempting and they will tell stories of someone who took it and yeah. did fine that's not a study and likewise, all the books, there are so many How I Beat Cancer books. And it's the do what I, and they're always written, or not always, sorry, that's wrong. Um, they are often written from the, if you do what I did, you yeah. will be cured. And you cannot do that. I've deliberately not written a book about my journey for that reason. But again, so, so in terms of gaps, 
it's that site, as you say, digital signposting, reliable signposting, but also helping patients get to things like I mentioned the, the forum that I went on, mm -hmm. which is still runs and it's still a very good place for patients with colorectal cancer to go to in the UK. There are also on Facebook, there are lots of very good support groups, some run sure. by charities, some run by individuals, but they're not all good. So actually, you've got to find good ones. So signposting them to the very good um, Facebook groups. And there is so much to be gained from patient to patient communication in a safe forum. Yeah, and safe environment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But all of it is we have we should be signposting patients to these information points i also have to say I and mean, i do a lot of work with, with, with several charities a lot of the charities websites are very difficult to navigate mm -hmm. finding access to the right bit of information can be very hard um, and so just saying to them go to the charity website isn't always the right thing always the best the, the best solo piece of advice. Now the charities might also need a, a little bit of a communication course in a way. <laughs> I, I, yeah, but help from help from good communication yeah, yeah, yeah. on how to revamp absolutely but your digital portal. But you, to be honest you know they are also most likely volunteers a lot of them are volunteers trying to do their best yeah. uh, and, and, and I think that is another point that uh, I find particularly interesting and that is you know uh, how can we and we is a very broad term help patient organizations charities with further professionalizing their own yes. way without you know not talking about per se earning loads of money and stuff that's not what i'm talking about but like really you know uh, create more impact in a way and and be more supportive to the patients that they are representing um have more influence for the things that they are striving for in a way towards agencies and so, and so on and so forth. I think that is something that we should not underestimate, that, that the importance of that. And there are some really good examples in the world where yeah. really they, 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 they really went into almost a, a full professional organization. Um, and there are also examples where they basically there are only like two persons trying to keep it alive with all their best efforts so it's not about their efforts to do it but they don't they don't get to the next stage and that is actually something that is not so good for that particular situation in that country than for that particular disease what we're talking about well i set up strive for five as a program which is uh, www.strive45.org it's a not-for-profit I, I actually by not-for-profit i pay for it all myself um okay. and it is entirely around giving hope for people with stage four um cancer it's a very important uh, initiative but yeah. it, it it shares just tips to get the most out of your chemo it's, a, it's approaches to things it's, it's some, some of the latest information but it's deliberately done to be outside of the charity so it, it isn't doesn't it doesn't tread on the toes of what any of them are doing sure. but it's a place that you can go to and, and i've had so much feedback from patients where they said it's that it's the first time they read something positive about stage four cancer mm. and so that's why so i think this is important but i've designed it i designed it originally was just to tell the story of me getting to five years to give people hope but i got such a response to it that it's become a program to give hope to people that's really fantastic uh, steve what, what you what you try to do there it's an example for other cancers maybe uh, and other other diseases actually where maybe not it's not the same kind of 
same thing with Strive for Five because that's really a cancer kind of thing, of course. But but the, the same principle can can be applied in other places as well, I think. Um, so, yeah. so so say it again. What is the what's what so was the website? Strive for Five. So it's F O R F I V E. Strive for Five dot org, and we've got a presence on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram as well. I can't thank you enough for this this wonderful conversation. And I think we had a script up front that we thought, hey, let's 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 touch upon these points. I can tell you it was the other way around in the end. And and that's perfectly fine. And and I think it was a was an interesting conversation. Really gave me more insights into you know the journey, uh, where you're coming from, your motivations and and uh, some really insightful uh, stories that you shared about communication and, and, and the gaps that need to be somehow solved, I would say, in, especially in cancer. Thank you very much once again, Steve, uh, for being uh, with us or with me uh, in, in the podcast. Uh, really appreciate it. And I might actually ask you uh, to come back again and, and uh, for a follow-up conversation. We, probably, we can probably fill another quarters of an hour or something like that i'd love to thank i just hope it's uh, interesting and useful for your for your listeners thank you finally i would also like to thank our listeners and i hope this sixth episode was informative and inspirational please follow us on your favorite podcast platform and stay tuned for the next episode